Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business. Firstly, a big thank you to you, the listeners, for powering us into the top 15 of Apple's business podcasts. If you are enjoying the series, it makes a massive difference if you can take the time to rate and review us on iTunes. The reason we do this podcast is to try and inspire people about the exciting jobs of the future that entrepreneurs are creating, understand the future of our economy, and allowing people to realize their potential. I didn't know what I was doing when we started the podcast, and truth be told, I still don't know where it's going to end up either, which is not a hugely dissimilar story to today's guests. So it's wonderful to see the reviews of the podcast by Charles Fletcher of Navigate Politics and hearing from people like Eben Owen, who has recently got a job, having been inspired by some of the guests on the podcast. Always feel free to reach out and drop us a line on hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Our guest today is Alice from Entrepreneur First. EF, as it is more commonly known, is 10 years old this week. If you look at the stories of the co-founders, Alice and Matt, they are both articulate, bright, attended Oxbridge, went to work at McKinsey, and even have MBEs to show for their efforts. They've also fostered their first billion dollar company, Intractable, which also happens to be the UK's 100th unicorn. But it has not all been plain sailing. You'll hear today how they initially thought that they were going to be a charity, but the charity commission ruled that out. And for the first two years, they didn't really know the direction they were heading. They just had a simple idea that investing in people was the way forward. There are, I believe, many myths around entrepreneurship, some of which I try to challenge on this podcast. One of them is that entrepreneurs have a light bulb moment. Another is that entrepreneurship cannot be taught and that entrepreneurs are born, not creators. I have written for The Times in the past about how we are at a sea change in the way that we perceive entrepreneurship. It is now a much more credible career choice than it was even 10 years ago. In some ways, it's never been easier because of the amount of tools and options there are available. However, that can also make it more difficult to know where to turn on occasion. That is partly what EF looks to solve by matching you with a co-founder and learning the basics of entrepreneurship from some of the very best. EF have also become a modern-day UK export, now with postings in Paris, Bangalore, Vancouver and Singapore. Similar to Ben Francis of Gymshark, one of the most exciting things about EF is that you get the feeling that we might just be at the end of the beginning of this story of this company. Thank you once again to our partners on this podcast series, Octopus Ventures, who are one of the largest and most active BC investors in Europe, investing in the people and ideas that will change the world because it believes that you can build a better tomorrow by investing in it. Octopus set up specialist teams in five areas where it sees maximum potential for growth and impact over the next few years. They are health, fintech, deep tech, consumer, and B2B software. They invest more than 200 million every year between them. Next week, we will be hearing from their co-founder, Simon Rogerson, 
about their 20-year journey and why they have become a B Corp. And on to today's episode. So, Alice, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you so much for having me. If you saw the Prime Minister, what would your pitch be to him explaining what Entrepreneur First does? So I would say that Entrepreneur First take the most talented individuals who have found a potential. Um, they don't need an idea. They don't need a team. They don't need an incorporated company. And, and we invest in that as an individual. And, I, and we work with them to find a co-founder, develop an idea, and get to the point where they can raise seed funding. Um, we've been doing this for the last 10 years in London um, and then have offices across Asia, Europe, and North America. Uh, and we've created about $4 billion worth of companies. Amazing. And where, and I think this is obvious in some regards, but where did the name come from? So I think obvious depending, depending on which country you're, you're in, it was a, um, a slight ripoff of Teach First, to be totally honest. Um, the original idea for EF, which uh, started our careers, but that's my co-founder, started our careers at McKinsey. Um, and McKinsey had been doing some work for the government on um, how to build tech city. Um, this was you know, back in, what was it, 2010, 2011. And one of the suggestions was to build a, a graduate scheme for entrepreneurs. Um, and so the most successful uh, graduate scheme at the time was Teach First, who was doing absolutely a lazy job and, and they still are. Uh, and so it was, it was a kind of ripoff of, of that name. Um, but I think it, it nicely summarizes how we think about ourselves now. You know, we put the entrepreneur first. It's not about a business. It's not about the idea. We're a talented investor. Um, and so having the entrepreneur front and central uh, makes, makes perfect sense for us. And that's one of the fascinating things about EF is that it has evolved a substantial amount from when you first started 10 years ago. I think it's your 10 year anniversary this month, if I'm, I'm right in saying. On Monday. Yeah. On, on Monday. Um, just, could you talk us through a bit of the evolution of EF and how the, how the business model has changed? Because whilst you're backing and in, investing in entrepreneurs, you are also an entrepreneur yourself. Yeah, so maybe I'll start backwards. So what are we today? Today, we are a, um, an operating company. So we have about 120 people work worldwide that work for EF, delivering our platform to, to about 600 founders around the world. And we manage funds. So our business model is that we deploy, we've got about $200 million worth of capital under management. Um, and we deploy that capital into companies that are created through the program. Uh, and um, we make our uh, money through through those funds, so through through carrying funds. Where we started was very very different. So we started off as a, a not for profit, um, a registered community interest company. We actually tried to incorporate as a charity, but I think we were told by the um, charities commission that turning kids from university into millionaires wasn't seen as exactly charitable. Um, so the challenge with EF in the early days was that we knew that the customer wanted the product, and we went to I think about 25 universities in the first three months of EF doing, we didn't know that was what it was called back then because we were pretty clueless, but doing customer development, going to speak to amazing um, uh, individuals at UK's universities and saying, hey, you know, do you want to be a founder? And they say, yes, um, but I don't have an idea. I, I don't have someone to work with. Um, so it became really clear there was lots and lots of demand. The two bits we then didn't know how to do was, okay, well, how do you actually turn strangers into fundable 
um, startups? And then secondly, how do you how do you build a revenue model around that? And um, how do you build a sustainable high growth business? Um, and it took us about three years to get to the point where we were a for-profit company. And it's one of those sort of slightly weird stories where, so for the first three years, we raised corporate sponsorships sort of from CSR or, or recruiting budget. Um, and then we had the lucky break of meeting an absolutely incredible high net worth individual who gave us a million pounds and, and invested that into the company. We turned into a for-profit. We invested that original um, a million pounds. We got some amazing returns from that cohort that we invested in. And that really was the first opportunity for us to show that a fund business model um, would not only work well, but could scale really well and, and enabled us to scale to, uh, you know, from 30 founders a year to, to 600 founders a year. Tell us about the process of you know, meeting that high net worth individual, obviously changed a huge amount. And it is something that is talked about a lot that people go on a friends and family round. How can you go and try and find investment in those first early days? What was the process that you went on? for that <laughs> the process that we did is not what we would advise our entrepreneurs to do and so um but i suppose the, the the kind of warts and all story for three years we'd been trying to find money in any way we'd spoken to a bunch of vcs in london all of whom basically said this is not how it's done you know you can't fund strangers you can't create startups from scratch this is this is not how it works and so any effort to raise money um in the traditional way kind of wasn't really working but I suppose over the three years, we built a pretty big network. Lots of people knew what we were doing. I think they probably thought that we were kind of smart, ambitious people, but just totally focused on the wrong idea. But it meant that, you know, people would introduce us to, to interesting folk. And it was through uh, an amazing um, guy called Peter Reed who made the introduction to this high net worth. I don't think he'd actually met him. It was one of those things that I think we were going to go to the meeting together. And then he, he um, I think was ill or something like that. But it was very much one of those true serendipity lucky breaks but I suppose we had spent three years building up that luck repository if you like in terms of just building a really wide and broad network um, across different types of individuals in the startup ecosystem um, we were very lucky to work um, quite closely with number 10 uh, Rohan Silva was on our board in the early days um, so we, we sort of accidentally stumbled into it and, and we're kind of lucky enough to do so I mean, now we would um, work with our companies to run a very regimented um, fundraising process and and I would recommend what we did. But I suppose we were pretty young. We were 25 when we started. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. And so part of this was just a learning curve for me and my co-founder, Matt, um, to get to the point where we actually had something that was investable. And taking those learnings over the last decade now, what advice do you give to companies that are starting out, you know, without giving too much, I guess, of the, the secret source of, of EF away, how do you advise companies to go about that fundraising process now? Because it's, it's such an important part for young, early entrepreneurs. The thing that I would make sure entrepreneurs know is that it is a skill. Fundraising is a skill that is learned. Um, and there is a process that you can go through that will give you better fundraising outcomes. You know, this is why accelerators exist because fundraising, you're not gaming it, but you're working the process to get the best outcome. You're creating a competitive environment for your round. 
you are getting introductions, warm introductions to the right people, um, and you're having the coaching that you need to say the right things at the right time in the right way. You know, I suppose that's a slightly cynical view of it, but I think um, there are so many programs out there that help people um, learn how to raise funding. If you haven't done it before, I would really recommend um, finding help and support to do that. You know, fundamentally, to raise funding, the key thing that you need is a product that people want um, and uh, ideally something that is differentiated and has some form of defensibility. Ultimately, if you can prove that you have customers banging down your door because they want your product desperately, when they use it, they're delighted by it. That's the kind of ideal position to be in to start fundraising. But I think we're seeing the market move so fast. So, you know, when I started um, EF in 2011, fundraising was hard and you needed a lot. You needed a lot of traction. You needed customers who were engaged. Now we're seeing people raise on, we're seeing founders raise on pretty incredible valuations just from a a PowerPoint deck, um, just with the kind of vision of what they want to achieve. But I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. I think it shows a, a maturity um, in the, the funding ecosystem. Uh, but it's never been easier to raise funding in the UK. Valuations are very healthy. Amounts raised are very healthy. Um, it's a, a fantastic a fantastic time to to build a startup. And I mean, do you think there's any any danger in startup valuations, etc., at the moment? Like you say, there's been this incredible journey that London and the UK has been on over the last decade of where entrepreneurship has become much more of a, a career choice for people. And throughout that period, I've heard that valuations are too uh, frothy and there's not enough proof in the in the market. And yet it continues at the moment on a kind of upwards trajectory generally. Is there a danger with that or is this something that is always talked about and there are always bears in the market? Well, it has been a bull market for just so, so long, you know, since we've been running EMF, we've never actually experienced a bear, um, a bear startup market. If you look at the difference in price between various startup ecosystems in the world, it's huge. There's still huge variations. So We've got an office in Singapore. The startups and the talent in Singapore are absolutely fantastic, but the valuations are low. So they're probably two thirds of what we see in London. London is about two thirds of what you would see in the, um, in the Valley. So do I think London is overpriced? No. In many ways, London has been underpriced for a very, very long time. Do I think that startups in the UK now have the same opportunity for high growth and international dominance that startups in the US have? Yes. And if you believe that's true, then our startups should be valued in a very similar way to their US counterparts. Now, whether the US counterparts are um, overvalued, that's another question. But there is a lot of capital around at the moment. Um, but I think the just calling it frothy disguises the fact that we're seeing more and more very, very talented entrepreneurs coming into the ecosystem. And because now in London, there is depth of expertise, the maturity of the talent that you can hire um, and uh, the, there's the expertise from a capital perspective as well as from a founder perspective. Um, I think it's just a sign that the ecosystem is maturing and we are producing more and more very high quality companies that, that have the price tag and the appropriate price tag attached to them. I think that's a, um, a great summary of, of where we're at. And to focus a little bit on your role. So you are a co-founder of Entrepreneur First, but you also hold the title Chief Product Officer as well. And so can you talk us through what that involves and, and how you made that distinction 
to have a have slightly different roles and, and how you divide that up with Matt, your co-founder? Sure. So Matt's role, so Matt is CEO and largely Matt does everything external facing. So he raises our funds. We've also raised money into the management company EF itself. Um, and that is all his um, uh, responsibility. My job is to um, make the product work and to make sure that the company operates effectively. So I create the companies, I create the value, Matt works out how to capture that value. And um, I think we, you know, we're very lucky to have been co-founders for the last 10 years and to have a really fantastic um, relationship. Uh, but I think part of it has been very clear, being very clear about what our roles are and being very distinct about that. And um, one of the things I really love about EF and just get so excited about is the intellectual process of how do you take strangers and turn them into co-founders working on a really exciting idea. I still just get so excited about how that process works and then how do you translate that process into different locations, different cultures. Um, and, it, you know, we've done something that everyone thought was impossible. And um, everyone thought this idea of talent investing of trying to fundamentally increase the supply of entrepreneurs um, was going to be impossible. There was a very long held status quo that founders were sort of all not, not created. You know, the, the weird geniuses, the, the crazy innovators, the mavericks. But actually, if you look, um, uh, if you look at all the research now that's come out, um, entrepreneurship is very culturally dependent. So dependent on who are you surrounded by and what are they doing with their lives? You know, ambition is based on your cultural context. So in Singapore, the most ambitious during the civil service. In the UK, yeah, the most ambitious during civil service, but actually lots of people join banking or consulting or, or law. It's, it, and in Silicon Valley, the most ambitious become startup founders. So I suppose what I get excited about is, you know, how do you develop a product that um, people who are sort of thinking about being a founder, but, but aren't really sure, who think it might be for them, but don't really know, how do you create a product that brings them in and then gives them the infrastructure that they need to be successful? And I know you've done so much work on this in terms of looking at the attributes, because it's, it's part of the application process to, to get on an EF is, um, you know, answering questions about ambition and so on. But some of it is also counterintuitive about, as you kind of alluded to there, people being outliers and, and taking different walks. Can you just talk us through the sort of the different attributes that you are looking for when applying and what has worked well with your 10 years experience of trying to pair entrepreneurs? Yeah, sure. So, um, it was interestingly, we found that asking people about their ideas at application is a really great way to make that selection decision. Um, what we found is that really amazing people have terrible ideas. And uh, developing an idea is a skill. You know, you need to know what good looks like. You need to understand the parameters that make an idea one that has high potential versus one that is low potential. And um, so we don't ask people about their ideas when they apply. What we're looking for is their ability and their behavior and how they've demonstrated those in the past. What we're looking for is individuals who are on um, a really steep life trajectory. So compared to their peers, relative to their peers, they are outperforming at every stage. Um, and largely we like people who are pretty early on in their careers. So often the people that join us are kind of sub six years and experience in their career. And really what we're looking for are, you need to be smart and um, you need to be able to problem solve really, really fast. Um, academic excellence doesn't really matter. 
but um, what really matters is your ability to lean into learning and your growth mindset and your ability to pick up new skills really, really fast. So being smart helps. We like skilled people. Um, the majority of people we take on EF do have some sort of technical background. Um, we have the, the kind of computer science PhDs and postdocs, um, all the way through to people who are self-taught um, web developers. Uh, but having some sort of technical skill that allows you to bring a tech company to life very quickly matters um, for the kind of companies we produce anyway. And that's, you've, you've talked about this in uh, one of the great blog posts you've written about this in, in terms of finding your edge as well. And that, that can be a very hard process sometimes. And I used to make this point in Downing Street, actually, where people talk about skill sets and, and so on, whereas actually it can be very hard to define your, your own skill set. Um, yeah. But it's that crucial ability to, to do that and find the edge. Some of the um, terms around this in kind of startup land have turned into being, you know, what is your superpower, et cetera, which is kind of, I guess, a colloquial way of, of trying yeah. to talk about skill sets, which I find really interesting because I don't think most people think of themselves as a, a sort of collection of skills per se, but how can people find that edge that you talk about and when they're trying to do their own assessment of it, because we've all in the pandemic spent more time thinking about, mm. you know, careers, et cetera. How can people self-assess themselves to find that edge that potentially you're talking about? So the reason that we developed this idea of edge and using your edge to develop a startup idea was that so many people, when they think about developing an idea, they think they should, in many ways, leave everything they've ever known. Um, and often people think about, okay, I need to find a problem to solve. What's the problem that I, I have in my daily life that I can solve? Now, just because you've experienced the problem doesn't mean that you are the best person to create the solution. What you're looking for is to solve the problem where you have the edge. And so in some ways you need to understand what you can do and what that uniquely enables you and at what problems that uniquely enables you to solve. Um, we think about edge in, in kind of a couple of categories. You know, you can have a technical edge. So if you have an advanced degree in, in science or, or maths or whatever it may be, it's highly likely that it's going to be a really useful, valuable tool in solving certain problems. Um, and if you have that, the opportunity to cost a little easier, it's huge. It might be that actually you have um, a market edge, that there are certain industries that you've had exposure to when you can see and understand the problems in that industry that others can't. You may have worked in government for a long time uh, and you've always wondered why the status quo was done in a certain way. You've always wondered why certain inefficiencies weren't solved. You know, you have an understanding, you have an edge, you have a starting point for an idea because you understand lots of the problems. You also have a view of what the solutions could be. And then the third kind of people we, we sort of look for are actually kind of edgeless. Um, so we also work with kind of catalyst founders um, and these are individuals who can catalyze other people's edges. But as you're thinking about becoming a founder and thinking about what your skill set is, I would I'd really push you and encourage you to think about, okay, what am I uniquely good at? What market do I have potentially unique insights into? And with the market one, one of the interesting things is that having two decades of experience in the market may actually make you less likely to be adept at solving problems. And um, often it's at the point where you've had just a couple of years exposure to a market where and you're still in the position where you're like, this is crazy, rather than fully understanding like why it can't be changed, how difficult it will be to change, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting in previous episodes, Hayden Wood of Bull and Anne Bowden of Starling, um, both unicorns in their own right now, talk about actually that a lot of the people they employ, and they're both almost at a thousand now, it, do not have experience of energy or financial services, because as you say, that can, you know, can sometimes be a hindrance in, in terms of when you want to you know, disrupt and shake up markets and so on. And your point about government is a point I make to lots of people who, who I speak to, who think about their next moves after government is that the whole theory of what you're trying to do in government, most of the time is trying to solve problems, trying to solve citizens problems. And so you should, you have got access to lots of things that aren't working particularly well and that can be improved. Um, and so I often think it's a good place for, for entrepreneurs to start, um, their careers, um, and so on, despite the fact government and entrepreneurship in some ways are huge culture clashes in terms of the way that, um, governments like to plan lots in advance and entrepreneurship tends to be slightly quicker moving than that. So if you're, if you're smart and you're skilled and you know, that that's great, you know, you could also be a great management consultant or employee. Um, so the three founder behaviors that we look for are challenging convention, drive to achieve and, and followership. And broadly what that means is we want individuals who are trying to do something different. They're trying to um, take alternative paths in their life. And you can see that in the previous things that they've done. But it's not just enough to challenge convention. You've also got to be trying to achieve something. So we like individuals who in the past have achieved or trying to achieve big, um, ambitious things. Um, and it's not enough to do that by yourself. You have to generate followership. You have to be a leader who has some, who takes people on the journey. And so a combination of these five factors is, is what we look for. But I suppose what's interesting is we often find founders spike on a couple of them um, uh, rather than all of them. Um, what we'd much rather have is, a, is somebody who is very spiky on, on kind of three of them than somebody who's kind of average across all five. Uh, but that's, that's kind of what we, we look for. And um, it's amazing how consistent that is across all of our locations around the world. How can people demonstrate that in those questions in terms of being an outlier and in terms of doing something different? I mean, I'm you know, impressed when like hiring people now, the amount of different things that um, youngsters have, have done. You know, I thought I did quite a lot when I was at university 10 years ago, but compared to the generation that come through now, it is extraordinary, I find, some of the different things that, that people have have done and what example is there an example that you can that you can give that particularly stands out that is unconventional but demonstrates how to go about that yeah sure and um, one of the things i would say is that it's never been easier to try starting something and so many many people who apply to entrepreneur first have tried starting something in the past you know the the cost of bringing an idea to market in your time, basically. Um, it's so, so easy that uh, I'm often quite surprised if, if somebody hasn't had a go at starting something. But I suppose we also like to see people who have um, outperformed in, in kind of whatever field they've been in. So think about one guy that I interviewed who had just this amazingly kind of unusual background where he'd been part of the British Olympic um, junior squad had got hurt, ended up going to university instead, studied physics at one of the UK's top university. universities, ended up being top of his year. And um, while he was also doing that, he became interested in electronic dance music, 
um, created a track that was then sampled by one of the biggest EDM musicians in the world. And, and just everything that he'd done, he'd outperformed and he'd taken, you know, when you think about challenges convention, almost physics students um, also uh, really deep into electronic dance music and, and kind of bring that to market. No, that's, that's probably a pretty unusual set of activities. So it's that those kind of individuals who are, have that behavior and uh, ability where they are just trying lots of different things, often quite polymath in terms of the, the different things that they've done in the past. Um, but whatever they've done, they've had that obsession, they've had that competitive edge to try and be top of their field in it. Um, you know, ultimately being a founder of a high growth business, so I suppose the, the kind of companies that we're trying to create are companies that can be globally important, that can be can reach, you know, that unicorn status. Um, so we do need people who are thoroughly obsessive about what they do and, and, and competitive and want to try and um, achieve things that many others think are impossible. I think that's a, um, that's a fascinating example of, you know, the different ways. And it can be sports, it can be music. It's that striving to get to the top, but also, and, you know, we've seen this so much with the Olympians this summer, the the kind of training and the mindset that you can take from almost any industry or any any kind of hobby and you know you can apply that to your kind of professional life yeah and so when it comes to jobs of the future this is almost a two-part question because there are you know there's the ef team which you're growing um substantially and then also i was looking at your um, page earlier and you have lots of your portfolio companies that are on there as well and you've got over 800 roles available so at that next level because and I know you have been very honest about this that being an entrepreneur and being that founder from the outset can be really hard and really tough you know I think Elon Musk talks about it's like chewing glass it's not always appropriate for everyone to do that, but some people want that entrepreneurial feeling and being part of a part of a team that's at the outset of things. And that is what a lot of this show is about. It's kind of highlighting some of these new roles that are that are being created by entrepreneurs. So almost that that next level down in a, in a company. And what kind of jobs are you seeing being created, partly by EF, but I guess also by your portfolio companies as well it's been interesting during the pandemic to see how the tech sector has reacted and been hit by it there was a bit of a, a wobbling confidence and um, when the pandemic first hit losing it's crazy is just how quickly it has rebounded and um we saw many of our largest investment rounds done during 2020 particularly from usbcs coming over to the uk and our companies are hiring like crazy and it is such a rich industry. And I mean that both from a financial perspective, but also from a kind of variety of jobs perspective. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that. One of the things that are challenged is that there's now a tech industry and, and other industry. Broadly, all companies are going to have to become tech companies. And I suppose when people are thinking about their career, that it's almost working out, are you going to go for a tech-enabled old company that probably has quite low margins? Or are you going to join this kind of tech revolution where you're working for companies that, have crazy margins and, and often pay their, their staff um, through the notes. As in, I think if you look at salaries in tech compared to other, other industries, 
they, they are very, very unhealthy. And so in terms of what jobs are we seeing, you don't have to be an engineer to work at a tech company. And yes, there are a lot of engineering roles and, and tech companies are absolutely desperate for individuals that can help actually build the products that they're creating. Um, but as these companies are growing and as the um, uh, tech ecosystem develops, there are more and more roles that you would see, you know, across every industry, whether it's marketing, whether it's finance, whether it's um, product. Uh, and tech companies are hiring like a Leo. Um, and I think when I, whenever I speak to, to people outside the industry, it still feels like there's almost a mental block to making the transition from the non-tech ecosystem into the tech ecosystem. But for anyone who's considering it, um, both in terms of the upside, which often um, uh, financially, I think, could be much better working for a tech company, but also the kind of culture um, and what it feels like to work in these companies that are much, often much more focused on um, staff's happiness and wellness and community within the company. Um, I strongly encourage anyone who's thinking about making the transition to check out what roles are available to them. You know, as, as you say, we've got a, a jobs page, joiningf.com forward slash jobs that has all the, the roles that our companies are looking for. And I think you'd be surprised at the diversity of, of roles there. Um, you know, whether it's office managers, whether it's um, lab technicians, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very diverse. But so to take, take a couple of those, and I'm slightly putting you on the spot now, but in terms of there's a strategy and change manager, for example, and there is also a, um, community, a global community lead as well. And I think there might be some people that would, wouldn't recognize what those roles are. And, and they're almost jobs, particularly, I imagine like a global community lead that wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. Um, what do those roles entail and what kind of skills are you looking for? We're, we're hiring for a community need at the moment. And um, I was doing interviews last week, so I can very, very much tell you. Uh, so, I mean, the role for us is helping develop a strategy for the 3,000 people that have been through EF over the last 10 years and to, to become engaged with each other and to be engaged with EF. Um, so this may sound like a, you know, totally new kind of role, but actually roles like this have existed for decades. If you think about um, alumni managers at universities or um, at any sort of organization or society or club, they would typically have somebody who is looking after the membership, for example. So in some ways, it's just a rebranding of a role that's existed. Um, but I suppose maybe the one difference here is that a lot of the interaction with the community will be done online. So through um, platforms like Slack or Discord or um, whatever it may be. So it's... Uh, if you aren't in the tech industry and, and thinking about making that switch, I, I would definitely look at the role requirements rather than the job title. And, um, you know, I think the tech industry does have a selection of job titles that, that um, have become cool and trendy um, and attractive for employees. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're jobs that have probably existed in different guises in non-tech companies for a very, very long time. It's almost the tools of change, but the job, the, the objective of engaging people and like you say engaging alumni that hasn't changed but the tools to do it have changed yeah exactly exactly but also the tools aren't that complex i think often the and this is why i think probably the one of the many reasons why the tech industry struggles with diverse hiring is that um it can seem i think the barriers for some roles can seem very high 
um, because it seems like a particular um, uh, a particular type of role, whereas actually it's just a kind of repositioning. The tech world has repositioned, although it maybe maybe sounds a little a bit less sexy as a job, um, and trying to turn it into something that sounds more um, more attractive. But actually, I think the more that the tech sector can be very transparent about what roles entail, hopefully the more that we can um, attract diverse individuals um, to to the sector, which is is something that is currently struggled with. I know, and I know it's a, a lot what you've done with Code First Girls as well, trying to improve that side of uh, the, in trying to improve the the diversity and making people realise from all walks of life that the tech sector and entrepreneurship more broadly is for them. We have talked about a number of times in the past, Alice, about what the government can do to kind of speed the entrepreneurial system on. And we talked, we've touched a lot on the Valley in this conversation and the fact it's on its sixth or seventh cycle of entrepreneurship. And London, you could argue, is on its third, coming perhaps into its fourth mm. cycle now. And you have been such an important part of that in terms of going and you know creating this accelerator which has produced so many leading entrepreneurs over the last few years but there's no doubt post-brexit post-coronavirus you know governments talk about building back better and leveling up um in a way it's somewhat in similar to what we were just talking about in terms of the challenges the governments have always faced slightly but it does feel a very seminal moment what advice would be would you give to the government in terms of how they can build back better and level up? So one of the um, charities that I'm on the board of is called Generation UK. And what they're doing is taking um, young people who are out of employment uh, and upskilling them and, and then giving them access to jobs um, and particularly upskilling them in terms of developing their tech skills um, to get jobs at places like Amazon. It, it feels like the use of this country has been hit so hard by this pandemic and I suppose in some ways I feel the guilt of being in an industry that hasn't been hit hard by the pandemic at all but there are still massive barriers to help many of the young people who have been affected access jobs in this industry some of it skills some of it is having the network the confidence to actually apply and join an industry that feels very opaque and, and probably sometimes a bit cliquey so I would encourage the government to think about like the, the economic engine that is the tech ecosystem um, and to think about what are the things that they can do to support the connection between big tech companies wanting to hire desperately, not having enough talent and wanting to hire diverse candidates and having a group of young people who need jobs, training and um, access to careers uh, in a way that, you know, with a level of um, need that they probably haven't uh, seen for a very long time. It feels like a match made in heaven. There were just still a bunch of barriers. I think Generation UK is doing a fantastic job at breaking down those barriers, but I would love to see the government really lean into that opportunity um, uh, because I think it could be an amazing boost for the UK, um, both the tech ecosystem, but also for um, our young people who are in a pretty crappy situation right now. I agree very much with that. I think it's incredibly hard to start your career in the last um, few years for everything that's that's happened and as a final point is there a, a book that you particularly has been particularly inspirational on the journey that's helped you with that that you would recommend to people to read um so many but one that i think is i don't hear talked about very often was recommended to me by my coach and it's called 
fierce conversation uh, by Susan Scott. And, and it's basically a book about how to have really hard conversations. And, and I think particularly if you're a founder, but I think for anyone in their career, if you can nail how to have those awkward conversations in a way that is positive, I think it's just the most amazing skill. So Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott, we, we actually train a bunch of our entrepreneurs on, um, on stuff from the book. Uh, but I'm, I'm totally back on that. Brilliant. Alice, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. I very much hope we could do it in person later in the year. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts, and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs, disrupting industries, from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.